Good afternoon. Thank Council for your flexibility. Next case is Philip Morris versus NC Department of Revenue. We will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, may it please the court. My name is Alex Dale. I represent the appellant, Philip Morris, USA. At this time, I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. This case puts forward the question of what the phrase credit allowed means in a tax credit statute. When the General Assembly amended the export tax credit statute, subparagraph B, to say a credit allowed may not exceed $6 million, the question turns to what is a credit allowed. The new phrase may not exceed $6 million must apply to something, and that something is the phrase credit allowed. Now, both parties are going to argue to you that the statute is clear and unambiguous. Now, this is the case even though the department has had three different interpretations in dealing with Philip Morris's tax credits at issue. But the department has to argue plain language here, and the reason why is because all indications are that the 2003 amendments at issue were to expand the tax credits at the time of adoption, and that after adoption, everyone, including the department, followed Philip Morris's interpretation. Now, this court, um, in determining legislative intent, starts with the plain language, and that's where I'm going to begin to. But here we have plain language, context, and even the extrinsic evidence, if the court must get to it, all point in one direction, that Philip Morris should be allowed the tax credits at issue and that the trial court erred in rejecting them. Now, this court is taking a de novo review. This court gets a fresh look at what the statute says. And again, in, in plain language, looking at a plain language analysis, the court, when it's not presented with a defined, uh, a term that has to be interpreted without a definition, the court will often look to the ordinary meaning of the words. And we have given the court in pages 27 and 28 of our brief some dictionary definitions. When the court is looking for ordinary meaning, it'll often look for the dictionary definitions to see what the words are. The department ha has given you no definition, no support for its interpretation that the phrase credit allowed in subparagraph B must mean generated. We've also given you the case law that says um, allowed means claimed or a grant. We first cited to you the Virginia Hotel case, the U.S. Supreme Court case from 1943 that uses the statement allowed connotes a grant. It means to permit or to tolerate or to allow something. And then that case was um, followed by our Court of Appeals in Department of Revenue versus Hudson um, in a later case where the court again said the word allowed means claimed. Um, and so again, we've presented to you uh, dictionary definitions and case law to support the plain language interpretation that we are presenting to you. Now to respond to, to the department's argument on the plain language interpretation, again, the first thing to say is they've, they've given you no authority, no case, no dictionary definition, nothing to support their interpretation that the phrase credit allowed should mean credit generated. Um, but even moving beyond that, what, what uh, they focus- May I, over here, yeah. uh, Justice Barringer. Um, I'd like for you to explore for me um, some of the differences, at least your position is, in credit allowed versus generated. Um, in speaking uh, in 
I guess, accounting parlance. What would those mean in, in your industry and particularly in, in a tax context? So since the adoption, thank you, Your Honor, for the question. Since the adoption, uh, the issuing of the opinion of the Virginia Hotel case in 1943, there has been longstanding significance and longstanding meaning of the phrase credit allowed to mean something that can be claimed, it can be taken, it can be used. Those are all, all words that would be similar to credit allowed, can be taken or used. Um, and so it's, it's, it's talking about claiming a credit. And this court in the Wilkie case, Wilkie versus City of Bowling Springs Lake, has said when a phrase has long-standing significance, this court can presume the legislators intended to attach the same meaning to it. So again, since 1943, when that Virginia Hotel case came out, the phrase credit allowed has meant credit that may be claimed or taken or used, not a generation, credit generation. Um, and, and so what the department is really focusing is that on. How, is that so accepted in the usage and when tax is the subject matter that we could say it sort of has a meaning, an industry meaning, so to speak, when our legislature uses it. So to say credit allowed is drawing some distinction between credit determined, credit earned, credit generated, these other terms that are used in, uh, in federal tax law and other places. Yes, Your Honor, you can, you can uh, use it in the way you suggested because- How would we know that? How, how can we figure out if, if that's what the General Assembly was doing? Well, Your Honor, can look, I think the greatest answer to that is looking what happened in this one session law. Again, it's, it's part of the same plain language analysis when you're looking at one session law, but we have the export tax credit statute, which had a, a cap and a carry forward and used the phrase credit allowed. And then we have the enhanced credit statute, which was dealing with employment um, additions that would, would have generated credits. And there, there was a generation limit and the General Assembly used the phrase credit earned. So you have in, this, in the same very session law in front of you an example of how those terms of, arts are, uh, terms of art are used in, in different ways. And in fact, what you typically see is you see a, a cap and carry forward structure like we have in the export credit statute, or you see a, um, a generation limit like we see in the enhanced credit statute with the phrase credit earned. But the department is trying to argue to you that there's some hybrid blend here that has no other presence and they've cited to you no other statute that's used this blend of both types of limitations. And, and in fact, there's a reason for that. That's just not what the statute says. We are, we are dealing strictly with a cap and carry forward in the export tax credit statute. And so I, I think the, the, if you look at the other tax credits that, that are issued um, in some of the legislation, many of which come and go, I mean, as, the, as your honor probably knows, tax incentives often come and go, but you have examples from business and energy tax credits low-income housing tax credits where those same phrase of credit allowed has been used in the same context we're describing. And so you can see it in our own statutes. But I think the session law we have right in front of us is the greatest example of the two differences. Um, the, the department's argument really is to you that, that structure or placement of the words in the statute controls the plain, the plain language meaning here. Um, but this court has repeatedly said that structure, placement, headings, things that go around the words do not carry the day. And in fact, in the city of Raleigh versus Mechanics Farmers Bank, headings gave way to the words. In appeal of Forsyth County, the headings were completely disregarded because they were contrary to the words. So you have examples of this court previously saying, we're going to look at the words. We're not going to look at the structure, placement, heading, or anything that goes around it. We're going to look at the plain words. Um, and, and the other thing I want to say about the structural argument <clears throat> is that the structural argument is just simply wrong. 
that, that, that phrase may not exceed $6 million was placed in subsection B because it needs to be there. It's part of the formula or the calculation. And, and they say, well, well subsection B is, a, is the calculation and C is the cap, so it shouldn't be in B. Well, actually, it should because it deals with the su successor in business. If you look at what has happened in the amendment in 2003 to add the sentence about how you calculate in uh, a credit for successor in business, and then the very next sentence, the last sentence that we're talking about here, it says the credit allowed may not exceed $6 million. It follows right out of that successor in business um, discussion in the statute. And so to give you an example of how that would play out, you might have, you know, there are all different ways successor in business may come about, but if you have a merger, you would have company A merging into company B. Company A goes away. Company B is the successor in business that remains. Well, company A, let's say they merged June 1st, Company A is going to have tax liability and credits that it earns until that June 1st date, and it's going to file a return. It is a taxpayer, but the successor in business is also going to file a return. So if we have the, the predecessor getting $4 million in credits and the successor getting $6 million in credits, you have the risk of double dipping. You have four and six where one taxpayer is getting more than the $6 million cap, and that's what they're stopping in subparagraph B. It is properly placed in subparagraph B. And so the, using the structure of the statute is a non-starter for the department. Um, the other thing I'll add, again, the department does not want to argue what the phrase credit allowed means. The department wants to skip over that and focus solely on the phrase may not exceed $6 million. Um, but this court in Department of Transportation versus... Uh, if I might stop you once more, um, the, um, uh, if this credit allowed is interpreted in the way the department or actually the trial court has done so, does it have significance beyond the case in front of us? Can it be, can it be problematic in other tax situations, um, the definition being um, conflated or, or uh, compared with generated? It, it would, Your Honor. In fact, um, there, there are a number of tax credit statutes, again, that come and go. <laughs> and so, um, and this, in fact, this one um, you know, came to its end in 2018 by its own terms. But if this court was to say, as the department argues to you, my friends on the other side will argue this, if, if, if this court was to say credit allowed means credit generated, you have changed the dynamic of what a lot of tax statutes provide because they use that phrase credit allowed a lot, again, in the, in the cap and carry forward context, which has no generation limit. But you would be saying there is a generation limit in, in saying credit allowed means credit generated, as the department argues to you. So that would be a problem, Your Honor. Um, and this is, goes to my lack of knowledge about sophisticated mergers like this. But so my understanding, you correctly, that if you, if two companies merge, like company A and B, and that, you know, the name of the new company is A, still remains A, but it's really the two merging, that in tax year one, if they do the merger in the middle of the year, that in tax year two, when you pay tax year one's taxes, you're not filing one uh, set of taxes for that new company and having to account for what the actions of both companies before you would until the merger file a tax return for the, the the company before the merger and then a second one for the new company. What about the other company that merged? Should they you file two different returns for the two companies in the middle of the year and then one for the rest? Is that how it works? So so typically, again, there's many different ways to, to merge and there's a, a Reg F version, which is different than the plain vanilla typical type of um, subparagraph A merger, but a, a typical vanilla merger, you would have at the end of the end of the tax year, whatever that 12-month period is, you would have the predecessor filing a return for, for its operations up until the moment it, it ceased its existence. 
and then you would have the successor filing for um, its most likely its whole year because it's merged. And of course, in the export tax credit statute, the successor in business has to readjust its calculation to cover the whole year because it has to take all of its predecessors into place. So in a typical typical merger, again, there's successor in business language covers all different types of, of ways companies may result in a successor in business. But in your typical merger, you would have, by, by the end of one 12-month period, you would have two different returns from two different entities. And if we, uh, we want to say that we know that the General Assembly knew that at the time of the enactment of this bill, like where can we look to, to demonstrate that, that that was, because it seems that we would need to be able to show the General Assembly understood that in order to look at the structure of that and say the intended what you're, you're saying the intent was. Yeah, we have cited to you several um, cases in our brief about how the court should, um, again, the Wilkie's a great example, the court should, when there is long-standing significance to a phrase, the court should understand the legislators intended to do that. Um, I mean, obviously, we'd be getting out of the plain language analysis and getting into other things if we were talking about exactly what a, a legislator understood at the time. Um, and I'm not, frankly, sure you would ever be able to gain that from any type of legislative history. But the Wilkie case makes it clear you should presume the legislators knew what the words meant when they have longstanding significance. So I think that's where the court starts in answering that question. Um, so again, we, we submit to you, if you look at the totality of the text, the plain language should result in Philip Morris being entitled to the tax credits at issue. Um, moving to the context, again, context can be looked at in, in, in a plain language analysis when you're still looking at the same statute. We, we, we have a session law here. It, it started moving through the General Assembly. It was titled Job Growth and Infrastructure Act. It came out as a session law entitled Economic Development. There was nothing in these statutes to show any intent to reduce incentives. It was all about growing incentives, and the court can look at that in determining intent. And then I, I've mentioned the um, clear distinction you have between the um, export credit statute and the enhanced credit statute. I think that's very meaningful to the court in its analysis. The General Assembly has shown us how you establish a generation limit, and they did that in the enhanced credit statute by saying a credit earned um, is limited in that statute. They did not do that in the export credit statute before you. And, and in this court in Hunt versus Reinsurance Facility, a case we cited in our brief, the court is supposed to harmonize portions of a, a statute or session law enacted or amended in the same legislation. So you have to reconcile those two. They, 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 the comparison between the two is very important, and, and this court has to reconcile how the General Assembly chose to use different words. And I think that goes to Justice Deet's Justice earlier question about how do we know the General Assembly knew that. They showed us. <laughs> they showed us in the enhanced credit statute how to do a generation limit, and they chose not to. They chose to use credit allowed, which has that historic meaning from Virginia Hotel, and also that our court, our court of appeals has adopted in Department of Revenue versus Hudson. Um, so why, though, wouldn't, if that was the purpose of this language, was to clarify that the total uh, credit allowed for the pre-merger companies and their calculation of their tax and then the, the newly merged company, why wouldn't the first sentence of the next section already cover that? Because isn't it, weren't you at that point considering them, though, to be just one collective company, so together that newly merged company can't have over six million. However, they break it out among the pre-merger companies. Yeah, the the, um, the reason for that is in in a merger context. Just again, using that as one example, 
uh, you end up with two different taxpayers filing returns. And so they needed to deal with the successor in business in a different way. And I would also say merger was front and center to the General Assembly's mind because what triggered this economic development, these incentives to come into place was, um, was Reynolds was looking to merge with Brown and Williamson and bring 800 jobs to North Carolina. And they were pushing for the enhanced credit statute dealing with employment. And so um, then Philip Morse comes to the table and we have the benefit of knowing this legislation is largely for those, you know, it, it cover, would cover others, but largely it was addressing these two companies and they did not want to give uh, in, you know, unequal footing there. And so um, I, think that, I think that really goes to, again, what is, what is the intent here? They're showing us how to do that differently. So um, the, the department's position also would, would require you to um, view the last sentence of subparagraph B as saying credit allowed means credit generated. But then in the very next sentence at the top of C to say credit allowed means credit claimed. So the department's position is inconsistent. It would, it would flip the meaning of words from one sentence to the next. And, and giving credit allowed a uniform meaning across the, across the statute, across the export credit statute is faithful to the text and also consistent with its purpose. Um, and so we think that is also part of the court's consideration as it determines intent here. Um, you can't move the phrase allowed from generated in one sentence to being credited or claimed in the next sentence. So we believe, again, if you look at the context, if you look at the overall session law, you look at the, um, how the, the legislation came to be and how it, how, how it moved through the General Assembly with its, its title and its preamble, all those things, again, point to Philip Morris being entitled to the credits. The, the third reason why we submit to you that um, Philip Morris is entitled to the credits is if you, if you do believe that both interpretations here are plausible, and we submit to you that the department's interpretation is not plausible for the reasons I've, I've mentioned and we address in our brief, then the court would be able to take in extrinsic evidence. And the extrinsic evidence is overwhelming in favor of Philip Morris's interpretation. So when you get to extrinsic evidence, courts can look at legislative history, goals of the legislation, the spirit behind it. Um, that's from the Lennox versus Tolson case. Um, and so as we start into that, uh, you know, there's the case of trustees versus Rowan Tech. Excuse me, before you go down that path, and this could be, I'm not sure if this might be covered in extrinsic evidence, but in your introduction, you mentioned that the department had changed its position several times. They have. Uh, would you explain how, and would you also explain what your argument is as to why that's relevant to how we interpret this statute? Yes, Your Honor. Um, so first of all, the department started, um, and you can see this on record page 134. The department has had allowed unlimited credit generation under the original version of the statute. That's where we started under the 1999 version. They, they said there was no, there was no uh, generation limit there. You can see that in the 2007 return, 2006 return, excuse me, communications that were made about that return. Um, you can see a number of instances where there was no doubt under the original, and they've conceded that in their briefing. Uh, you can see that uh, in their brief to the uh, administrative law judge in uh, um, They, they conceded. They conceded that that um, that there is. Excuse me. It's record page 222 that they concede the 1999 statute allowed unlimited generation. So that I don't think they're going to dispute that that was an interpretation. Second position was in the notice of final determination that they issued in this case in August of 2020. That's on record page 127. They took a new position. Now they say subparagraph C prevented the credit. You had a, had a, a generation limit under both the original, the 1999, 
and under the 2003 amended. So they changed their position on the original that they had before, but also they based it on subparagraph C. And then we get to the third position, which was argued to the administrative law judge and to the business court record citations 222 and 705, where they now say subparagraph B limits the credit generation, but only under the amended, uh, the amended statute, not under the original. So we've had three different, and, and here's why that's important. If you get to a looking at extrinsic evidence, you can look at how the department has taken various positions on this and changed its, its position. There's the, um, the case of assignment of pupils case that we cited in our brief where the court said, this court has said, you can look at how the agency to be um, tasked with applying the law has, has acted. And you can see they flip-flopped on it uh, multiple times. And so that's, that's relevant if you get to this level of analysis where you're dealing with, with an ambiguous statute and trying to construe it. One thing I think we're going to hear from your, your friend is that uh, there's a, if we get to the stage where we say there's an ambiguity, you lose. You lose because of a doctrine that requires us to construe no matter you know, how strong the ambiguity may be tilting one way or the other, we construe it in favor of the government. So how are you going to get around that if we end in a place where we're saying there's ambiguity? Yeah, you're referring to the Aronov decision and that, a couple things on that, on that case and that position. First of all, it doesn't end the analysis of, of statutory interpretation. I mean, if there's an ambiguity, you still have to interpret the statute. It doesn't eliminate that obligation for this court just because there's an ambiguity, therefore the, you know, the department wins in all instances. The other thing is that, that statement in Arnov um, is based on a case of appeal of Marcus Clayton Company, a 1974 decision. They, and they cite to that for that statement that says an ambiguity is resolved in favor of taxation. But Marcus Clayton Company doesn't say that. What it says is that the statute should be strictly construed against the taxpayer. We can survive strict construction. That's the court applying the language to us, and we believe we would survive that analysis given that the extrinsic evidence is so overwhelming that the department even said this was not a substantive change. It was a clarifying change. They, no one identified this massive shift in carry forward of credits when, again, Philip Morris had been generating more than 15 million every year. No one identified that as a problem. And so we believe we can survive under the Arnov analysis if the court has to get there. And in fact, I don't, I, I don't think it has great support for what it was um, coming under with the Marcus Clayton company decision well, space. You know, I, I agree with you about that. I think it's an odd um, doctrine for us to have construing a statute, but um, I mean, the, the holding seems clear. And, and the question I have for you, though, is that, and um, I think the Supreme Court of the United States is actually dealing with this right now also in the context of Chevron doctrine. But I'm wondering if ambiguity, you've been referring to it as looking to extrinsic evidence, which is a term we use in the contract context when you have an ambiguity in what you do next. But when we're talking about whether a statute has ambiguity or not, uh, I'm not sure that it's, we think of it as um, something where if the you just look at the plain text and you're not, you know, there's more than one reasonable interpretation that that makes a statute ambiguous because what you described as kind of extrinsic evidence, those are just tools in the toolkit that we've said in our precedent we are allowed to use to discern the intent of the statute. So to me, we don't get to the ambiguity until we've used all the tools. And so I, I understand at least one of your arguments to be, please use all those tools first. And if there's an answer that's not ambiguous, it's only ambiguous if there's reasonable interpretation that we, don't, we can't choose between them, and in which case we may be forced to 
resort to this doctrine that means the government wins and you lose, your client loses. What's your response to that? Yes, Your Honor. I see I'm in my rebuttal time, but I'd like to respond. Um, you're absolutely right. All these are tools that you can use in a plain language analysis, a textual analysis here. You, you can look at the context. You can look at all of those things. And, and you're right, the U.S. Supreme Court is, is wrestling with Chevron deference, Skidmore deference, and all those issues. But, um, but here, the department's entitled to no, no deference, no due consideration. They've been very clear to disclaim they ever gave an opinion or a rule here that would, that would have avo helped them avoid um, an argument where I would say they can't get the 25% penalty they want to charge my client, which would be under 105-264. But, but here, we are dealing um, with a situation where you're right, Your Honor, you can use all those tools, and it's only when you cannot reconcile them that you have to go to an ambiguity. And, and extrinsic evidence perhaps is an, uh, an inexact term, but it's getting into things that are outside of the, of the text and the context that's different. You're right, Your Honor. So, um, again, looking at the longstanding meaning of the phrase credit allowed, we would ask the court to reverse the trial court and to remand with instructions to allow Philip Morris's tax credits. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. May it please the court. My name is Ronald Dwight Williams II, and I represent the North Carolina Department of Revenue. Um, this appeal, Your Honor, concerns whether an out-of-state taxpayer is entitled to use tax credits in excess of a clear limitation in the statute 105-130.45b against their North Carolina corporate tax liability. Um, Philip Morris would have this court believe that this is a complex question that requires you to look at a myriad of different documents. However, as determined both by the North Carolina Business Court and by the Office of Administrative Hearings, the analysis stops at the plain language of this statute. The General Assembly inserted six words before credit allowed that it shall not exceed $6 million and is computed using the formula that was already in the statute. Uh, Philip Morris would focuses on the phrase credit allowed. Um, statutes cannot, must be read in their, uh, must be read contextually in their entirety and words cannot be read in isolation. Um, read together with context, there is a clear limitation to how much, a credit, how much credit can be generated in a year and how much credit you can use against your tax liability in that given year. And those are in different subparts of 105, 130.45. Can I ask you a question about that? Um, yes, Your Honor. In the original version, so before this amendment, why in that version did the department believe that you could generate more than six million but only sort of claim six million for the credit. Where in the text, because I read that version and also think you can make an argument that you can't ever have more than six million that you carry over in any given year to the next. I, I think you're correct, Your Honor. Um, I, I would disagree didn't with you say your, didn't, I, Doesn't I would, your client take that different position as to those mm -hmm. earlier taxes? Yes, Your Honor. I would say that I disagree with counsel's representation of the department's position. It was the department's position up until summary judgment at OAH that this was a clarifying amendment. In fact, in the legislative update, the department described the changes to 105-130 as clarifies that the maximum allowable credit for cigarettes exported during a tax year is $6 million before applying the limitations provided in subsection C. Um, it was always the department's interpretation that this was a clarifying amendment. They were simply clarifying that the maximum amount generated and usable in a year was $6 million. 
Your friend asserted that you concede now that before the amendment, the government says you could carry over more than $6 million. Do you dispute that? Uh, I would say that the department uh, made, a, a, made a choice to narrow the issue for the Office of Administrative Hearings. Um, because we were talking about tax year 2010 moving forward, and all of the credits that were generated under the 1999 amendment were used by 2009, they decided to instead just focus on the inserted language for the 2003 amendment. So the previous amendment, the previous statute, 1999, and any of the credits that flowed forward are not before this court. Um, and again, the department has, uh, I'd use the word, uh, is no longer uh, asserting that argument as to the earlier years. Your Honors, it's the position of the Department of Revenue that the opinion and order of the business court should be affirmed for two principal reasons. First, the language of NC Genstat 105-130-45B is clear and unambiguous, and where it is clear and unambiguous, there's no construction, no need for construction beyond the plain language of the statute. And that's what was determined both by the Office of Administrative Hearings and ultimately affirmed by the North Carolina Business Court. Second, the department's interpretation, unlike the interpretation of Philip Morris, does not create surplusage and it does not lead to an absurd result. And the department made that argument in the brief, uh, brief page 41 and uh, 42 under those subheadings. On, on your first point, yes, um, do we consider the fact that the legislature used the phrase uh, credit earned in 105-130.46? Is that relevant to, to our analysis? And if so, how? I would actually agree with, with counsel that the goal of the legislature was to mirror the language both for the enhanced credit and for the export credit. Um, but you will note that the cap in 105-130-45, the cap on use is titled cap. However, that same cap is titled ceiling in 105-130-46. I have no doubt that the General Assembly intended for the use of the credit against your tax liability to both be a cap in 105-130-45 and 105-130-46. So despite using different words, they had the same intent. Um, in that same analysis, the General Assembly wouldn't want to have a credit um, for one taxpayer, in this instance, R.J. Reynolds, and another in the case of Philip Morris that has different treatment. In other words, what reason would, would R.J. Reynolds use the enhanced credit if there were a limitation for that credit but no limitation for the credit found in 105-130-45? So to put the two credits on equal footing, I think there was a generation limit and a limit on the use in both statutes. They put them in equal footing. So the, the difference in terminology you think is immaterial? Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. What about Justice Barringer's question? So you represent you know, the expert agency in this area, and uh, there's this notion that these words, when you put these two particular words together, they may have ordinary meaning. So allowed may mean something, credit may, but you put them together, credit allowed, and there's something different there in the sort of the lingo of, of taxation that's something different than tax, or credit earned, credit generated, credit, so that those, there's this contrast, they mean two different things. Do we need to think about that? Can we think about that in trying to interpret these words? I think, Your Honor, that's why, like the, in the Supreme Court case Davis, that's the reason why you have to read the statute in context. What is the purpose for which the sub, subpart B exists? Um, if I'm a taxpayer, I, I like your idea of the experts, but if I'm just a taxpayer and I want to determine, hey, I'm going to manufacture cigarettes in North Carolina, I intend to export them through North Carolina exports, how much credit have I created for a year? How much credit have I generated? Where do I look to determine that? I look to subpart B. So the purpose of subpart B in the plain language is to determine first who qualifies. 
a cigarette, someone that manufactures cigarettes in North Carolina and exports them to foreign countries through North Carolina ports. Second, how, how is the credit determined? And then that last sentence, I think, which is the critical sentence, how is it computed? How do I determine the numbers? And that is where the legislature added the terms, shall not exceed $6 million. And I think that, that language limits both the generation there and then separately the use against your credits in subpart C. So uh, we could, while, we, while I know council would prefer to focus on credit allowed, all of this has to be read in context of the statute and for what purpose does that, that portion of the statute serve. So taking a look at the plain language of the statute, and in particular, uh, I was just speaking with Justice Dietz, 105-130-45B, as opined both by the Office of Administrative Hearings and the North Carolina Business Court, it was put together in a logical fashion, with subpart B speaking to how you create or generate credit for a year, subpart C putting a limitation on how much credit could be used in a given year. Um, I think the language in B, again, is informative to us. Um, the first line speaks to who ultimately can get the credit. Again, that's a manufacturer, someone who manufactures cigarettes in the state of North Carolina and exports them to foreign countries. Um, I would note that in this instance, we talk about the economic incentives that would have come to North Carolina, that Philip Morris no longer manufactured cigarettes in North Carolina post-2007. Um, so despite the passage in, I believe, 2003 of this amendment, they were only able to generate credits for three years, 2005, 2006, and 2007. Um, so even the purpose of having folks manufacture cigarettes in Concord, North Carolina, would have been frustrated um, absent the changes from the General Assembly. Um, the third sentence has been a, a big question before this court. What does it mean when the General Assembly inserted the language as to a successor in business and the language, that's, that, that, uh, the language that flows from it? If we were to take the interpretation of Philip Morris that everything after the comma, everything after in successor in business is only related to Philip Morris, is only related to um, a successor in business, what, what formula would they use to calculate how much credit they have, they have used for a year? That is a full sentence. The last sentence there reads, the amount of credit allowed may not exceed $6 million and is computed as follows. It's a complete sentence. So if everything in that sentence only speaks to a successor in business, what formula does Philip Morris use to calculate the amount of credit they would have for a given year? This creates an absurd result and cannot be what the General Assembly in in intended by adding this language to the statute. You agree with your friend that that was designed to prevent double dipping, where you could have tax returns filed by the pre-merger companies as well as the newly formed company all attempting to claim the $6 million? Uh, No, Your Honor, I, I agree with your interpretation that that statute would cover any taxpayer who is creating credits um, under this subpart. Turning our attention to subsection C, in contrast, creates a separate limitation on the amount a taxpayer can use against their tax liability for a given tax year. And this means you can either, um, either use the full $6 million or to the extent you have other allowable credits, um, uh, up to 50% of your tax liability, up to 50% of what you owe for the year. So each section has its own logical purpose and is placed in the statute one, to explain how much credit you've created for a year, and then two, how much you can actually use in that given year. Words of the statute must be given their plain meaning. The 2003 amendment placed eight new words in the final sentence. The first words being, may not exceed $6 million. The last two being, is computed. 
based on the, the plain reading of those words, the General Assembly intended to limit the amount of credits that one could, could create or generate for a given year by subpart B, separately than subpart C, which allows how much you can use against your liability. As observed by both, again, the Office of Administrative Hearings, the North Carolina Business Court, the analysis of this court need go no further than the plain language of the inserted statute, of the, the, the plain language of the eight words inserted into the statute. I would say, Your Honors, the word credit allowed cannot be read in isolation. Um, I think the Hudson case actually, in many ways, speaks exactly to why you cannot read them in isolation. Um, in Hudson, the court was analyzing two separate statutes. So again, we, we have a little bit different scenario here where we're not talking about subsections of the same statute, but two separate statutes. And the department argued that because the word allowed was inserted in this statute, it, it limited how much would be, how much could be created or generated in a given year at $50 million. And, and I think it's interesting that the court in Hudson, um, when, when taking a look at the department's then interpretation said, when a legislative body includes particular language in one section of the statute, but omits it in another section of the same act, it is generally presumed that the legislative body acts intentionally and purposely in the disparate inclusion or exclusion of words. Why does that matter? Because in this instance, the General Assembly specifically added may not exceed $6 million to subpart B where it didn't already exist, clarifying that there was a cap on what could be generated and a cap on what could be used. So I think even in the instance of looking at Hudson, Hudson actually speaks more to the department's position and less to that of Philip Morris. Uh, to my second point, Your Honors, the department's interpretation does not create surplusage and it would not lead to an absurd result. Um, it is presumed that the legislature acts intentionally and so by adding the language may not exceed $6 million to subpart B, this was for a specific purpose. The department again argues to limit how much credit could be generated. If we were to take the interpretation of credit allowed proffered by Philip Morris, there would be no purpose for adding these words. There was already a generation, uh, there was already a use limit in subpart C that would have properly applied to any taxpayer, including a successor in business, on the use of the $6 million of credit claimed on a tax return. So to take their interpretation, there's no purpose for adding those words to the, to the statute, and therefore those words would again create surplusage. Additionally, uh, this would create an absurd result. I mean, ultimately, any taxpayer that was not a successor in business reading taking Philip Morris's interpretation of, of, of how, we how this court should read the language post the comma would not have an available formula to calculate how much tax credit they generated for a given year. Uh, that creates an absurd result and cannot be the intention of the General Assembly. So if there are no other questions, Your Honors. Because the, the, the plain language of the statute clearly places a $6 million limit on how much credit can be generated in a year, we ask this court to affirm the order and opinion of the North Carolina Business Court in favor of the Department of Revenue. Thank you. I want to begin by the fact that the department talks about there are eight words inserted to the statute, but then immediately says we want you to take it all in context. They're, they're trying to get you to focus on just the added words, but there's a problem with that. The new words may not exceed $6 million. That's a phrasal verb. It has to apply to a subject. 
and the subject is still credit allowed, which has had a long-standing meaning of something that can be claimed or taken or used. Um, additionally, the department contends, oh, we, we didn't have a prior position on the, the original, my friend argued, you know, don't have a prior position on the original statute, we just didn't want to fight about it anymore. Well, that's not what their briefs say. I would t encourage the court to go to page uh, 222 of the record and also page 705 of the uh, record supplement. Um, the department uh, argued to the ALJ on page 222 of the record that Philip Morris continued to follow the method authorized under the 1999 statute to generate credits. They're conceding that the original version allowed unlimited generation. And in fact, the business court found that in paragraph 31 of its opinion on page 501 of the record that says, because the department agrees there was no limit on the amount of credit that could be generated prior to the amendment. So how should we view that shift? If, if we believe there's a shift, how should we view that shift uh, as it relates to the statute? Well, for a couple ways, Your Honor. Um, first of all, it, it, it shows, again, an agency administering a um, statute uh, in varying ways over time, which impacts how the court, if the court is faced with looking at um, any kind of ambiguity here, that would be one way to look at it. The other way here is, to the extent the court wants to give any deference to the department's position, what is the department's position? <laughs> it has changed so many times, and I think that would be the other way, other way you would look at it. Um, and so I think it, it has bearing on, on both of those, in both of those contexts. Um, Does it also have bearing on how we should understand the term credit allowed? If they had one view of that term previously, should there be some consistency? Yes, Your Honor, it should. It should. That, that, that's a very fair point. It should bear on how this court looks as interpreting the phrase credit allowed, um, which, again, is it shows the department shifting on what that phrase means. Because, again, the new words may not exceed $6 million has to apply to something, and that is the phrase credit allowed. So what about your friend's argument that they haven't really been shifting on the meaning? They're just they're not chasing the older money, they're focused on what's going forward under this yeah. the newly amended provision. What, my, what's your response to that? My first response is that's not what their briefing has shown. That's not the position they've taken below. Um, and so it, it's new. <laughs> it's new today. Um, but again, so maybe we have now a fourth um, position of the department, which again shows what happens, has happened here and shows how the court should interpret the phrase credit allowed. Um, the, the, my friend on the other side also argues that our position has surplusage. That's simply not true. The department's position has surplusage. And I'll explain how theirs has surplusage. If, they, if, if subparagraph B is creating a $6 million generation limit, then why do you need a cap in C of $6 million? It's surplus. If you can't generate more, you don't need a cap of $6 million. They have a surplus problem. We do not have a surplus problem because, again, it deals with the credit in, in business scenario. And if you also look at the, um, the other argument my friend made about the formula, they say, well, if that, if that only applies to successor in business, then you have no formula for Philip Morris. That's not true at all, because the $6 million that is mentioned in, for credit allowed in B is the same as the cap, so it would apply to all taxpayers. It just would avoid the successor in business double-dipping problem. So it applies to Philip Morris. It applies to everyone. So there's no absurd result. There's no... You know, there's no um, surplusage in our argument. There's no absurd result that's created. The formula works for Philip Morris, and it also fixes the successor in business problem that they were trying to deal with here. And so 
as the court is faced with this, what you're faced with is a longstanding understanding of the phrase credit allowed. And again, this court's jurisprudence has said that this court needs to look at longstanding significance and assume the legislator, presume the legislator's intended to use that same significance. You've got a comparison of the enhanced credit statute and the export credit statute. The General Assembly showed us how to do a generation limit with the word earned. They didn't do it in the export credit statute. That was intentional. My friend on the other side argues they mirror each other. They don't. They're starkly different, and, and that's important. Um, and then the department ha has r repeatedly over the years, after tax returns were sent in, Philip Morris would always send in a list of all the carry forwards it had that it was generating every year. The department never challenged it for years. And you can, you can see that in the record in 155 through 157, 207, 136, 250, 277, never challenged the generation of credits um, in excess of the cap. And so, again, you have all of this, and then they say it's a clarifying change, not a substantive change. We believe that this court, um, and we ask this court to reverse the trial court and to remand with instructions uh, to allow Philip Morris's tax credits. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel.